0: Hello and
1: welcome back to the Venturing Aki podcast. Hey Akshay, how are you?
0: Doing great. It's good to be back.
1: Yeah, looks like the hats on the other head today. We'll yes. be talking about something very interesting that you have come up with, Operation Cookery. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so- I mean, you know what? Like, I, I don't know how many people are aware about this, but Operation Cookery was, you know, it has the potential and from what i read read right now is like making a movie as well it's a really f- cool operation that the indians pulled off and before we actually get into that i wanted to ask you why were the indians there like u.n involvement u.n peacekeeping is something which india has been doing for a long time so can you like you know just tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah and it's interesting how you pointed out that there's a movie potentially coming up about on operation kukri and before into before i dive into your question the answer to your question I actually want to explain to people the significance of Operation Kukri and why it is, it's is—it's an amazing operation in itself. First of all, from an Indian army's point of view, it was one of the most successful operations done on a foreign soil against a foreign enemy. That too, an enemy that they was not going there to fight. And, you know, things spiraled out in, in certain manner and, and they ended up becoming what they were. And we're going to dive into the details of that. But it—it it, this one has got all the drama in it, you know, from... Negotiating with with the hostage takers, uh, you know, you know, inviting the rebel leaders, uh, cozying up with them, uh, winning the hearts and minds of some amazing strategies to win the hearts and minds of the locals, also coming up with the realities of battle on ground, and some very very you know last minute uh, you know mental uh, what do you call it negotiations, like I mentioned before it's it's got everything from from drama to military action to politics to everything and and from those point of views also this is, this is a very interesting operation and yeah you know you know the best part is when the final military action took place given the ferocity and the nature of the fight there was only one person who got injured from the from the indian side and that too it was that's what i heard like the ca- casualties
1: were like very one sided in this i mean if you look at the scale of what happened i mean it seemed very one sided and how did it all come together
0: right so uh, i'll give a quick brief of uh, the united nations peacekeeping operations for the benefit of people who do not understand how the un operates right so let's assume uh, so in 1945 uh, you on, on
1: began... a very side note i mean the question is does the un really operate, operate? <laughs> yeah
0: the, yeah the, i mean that's again you know their efficacy uh, in in actually solving major problems are debatable questionable i mean they have yeah. not their track record is but the
1: peacekeeping operations are quite successful where they actually get involved. And that's something very interesting. I I mean, on a diplomatic front, UN fails quite regularly, but on a peacekeeping front, it is quite successful.
0: Exactly. And and see, uh, though, even their point of sort of uh, delivering aid, you know, to war-torn countries or to people in need, I think from that point of view, also, they have done a good job. But in 1945, you know, the United Nations were formed as a result of World War Two, and it was a way of sort of bringing the entire world on the same page when it comes to international relations, writing down common laws and procedures so that tomorrow, if there's a situation that arises where, you know, people, multiple countries are going to war, you can mitigate that using international relations, diplomacy, international laws, and so so on and so forth. Now. Part of that mandate is also countries that volunteer to give troops, they will be put under one umbrella and they will be sent to war-torn nations or areas where the governments or countries, they request help or they need help, right? So in, in those cases, you have peacekeeping troops who are sent to those locations. Now, we need to understand that these this this peacekeeping force that is, that is sort of created comes from various nationalities. So, you could be an Indian, but you'd be working alongside with a Pakistani officer who has been sent from the yeah. Pakistani military. Or you can have French army officers and British and like like it played out even in, in uh, this Operation Kokri, right? In, in this mm-hmm. particular mission in Siri, Sierra Leone. And uh, you also have this uh, situation where uh, you have two different distinct groups within the U.S. peacekeeping forces that are deployed on ground. One are the observers. Whose job is to uh, go there on land and just report on the kind of brutalities or what is actually happening on ground, and then you have a military contingent, uh, which again, different towns and different locations are given to different countries who have volunteered troops for this particular cause, and they operate wearing a common uniform, which is the UN uniform, where they wear the, the blue
1: berets, exactly. blue angels, blue, bear- blue helmets.
0: Yes. So that is how they operate now. The critical note that I need to point out is the difference between the observing team versus the military contingent. So military contingent's job is to be an interposing force between two warring parties, right, or warring groups. Uh, Either you go between them and you, you know, literally it's like a figurative way of, you know, holding them back, you know. All right, you go on that side, you go on that side kind of a thing. But if the need arises, they might also use violence or they might actually pull the trigger. And they come with a lot of significant combat support and uh, along with them. And they are self-contained units. They are not uh, relying on support from different various other organizations. They are predominantly self-contained. Uh, you also have the observing group, which again comprises of multiple countries, but it's a much more smaller team. They do not uh, you know, move around with weapons. They are just there to observe, report, and all of that stuff. So uh, in 2000, uh, there was... Uh, just a little bit, of beast, uh, little bit of background into the, the geography and how this uh, entire thing ended up happening. So, Sierra Leone is in Africa. It's in the western part of Africa. It's near the Gulf of uh, Guinea. Uh, it's the massive L-shape for those who are not familiar with, with geography. The moment you see Africa, the L-shape that you see, it's, it's, it's right there along the coast. And it is surrounded by Guinea and Liberia, the two countries that sort of enclose Sierra Leone. Now, Sierra Leone had been going through a very long eleven-year yeah, period. Yeah. that's what
1: that's what I was about to ask you. Like Sierra Leone has been had been having issues, even it has issues, and uh, so what really causes what really uh, you know makes UN get up and say that we're going to send peacekeepers. Now, peacekeepers, like you pointed out, they're an imposing force virtually. Were capable of. It's a small army, of multinational army, if I can call it that. What right. made in 2000 or before that un wake up and say hey, we need to move into sierra leone
0: right so i will get into that so i'll i think i'll for this particular answer to your question i'll i'll give a reference of a movie known as blood diamond i I've, have you seen the movie right so yeah. the the entire movie is surrounded around the, the the diamond trade that happens and the violence under which these diamonds are puked procured from the mines of Sierra Leone and then sent to other developed countries for their consumption, right? And oftentimes, so Sierra Leone is blessed with a lot of uh, resources when it comes to diamond mines, right? And where there is where there is resources like that and poverty, you have groups who have weapons and power and political ambition who will exploit that scenario for their own use. And oftentimes at the cost of subjugating their own people who are there, and obviously, this, when the fight starts happening over resources, it often turns violent and bloody. And that was one of the core reasons why uh, this situation escalated. And there was a civil war that happened for almost 11-year period in Sierra Leone. And because of this reason, uh, the UN ultimately intervened. And as a result of their intervention, there was a Lomé peace accord, which was signed. I do not remember the exact date on which it was signed. But one of the uh, agreements within that was it's going to, re- the RUF, which was the main uh, rebel group in that particular reason, region will surrender their weapons voluntarily, uh, but at, but the peacekeeping force would go in, they would first establish their uh, camps all across the country, they would then give $300 to ev- each and every single militant who surrenders, now $300 for people like you and me may not be enough, although it's a lot, but for Sierra Leone that's like an instant millionaire, you know, yeah and the idea was that initially for every ruf rebel who surrenders voluntarily he'll get 150 dollars the moment he surrenders and then he has to go through a rehabilitation process which again would be taken up under the the united nations uh, you know under the camps that they have set up and the fundamental role of the 5 by 8 gr the gurkha rifles who were there was to run these camps rehabilitation camps where uh, working alongside various ngos they would impart a lot of skills, with vocational skills, so that they can be integrated back into the society. So,
1: so like, if I can, you know, make you take a step back and understand, 5 gr, which, you know, th- that's how it all started, Operation Cookie spiraled out of what happened with their companies. They didn't go as a piece, they didn't go as a fighting force, they went as more of a, you know, oversee, like, investigator or facilitator role, they didn't go there to actually fight, right? So their role was not combat oriented at the start, at least, is that a fair
0: right. You're absolutely right. In fact, it's not just, it's not just the five by eight GR. It is all peacekeepers. See one, you, so all peacekeepers are also selected by the way, and they go through an orientation program, which may last from a couple of weeks to a couple of months where they are specifically told that you guys are not going as warriors. You are going as peacekeepers. So your mindset mindset has to be completely different. You know, you cannot be trigger happy, and yeah. uh, I think uh, what we'll touch touch because upon this. I,
1: I, I asked this question because you know, I, I asked this question because we were coming out of Kargil in ninety nine, and this Correct. is when you know units were being told to reorient their strategy from going from war to peacekeeping, and it requires a significant mindset sh- mindset change as well, right? So, yeah, yes, that's so, something which is quite interesting.
0: Yeah. So, what is interesting is when the Indian troops were inducting. Uh, They went through a two-month process where this is exactly what they were preparing for, you know, understand what Sierra Leone is all about, understand the issues that are playing out over there, and then understand that you are going there not as a combatant, so your mind shift is very different, you're not looking at everybody as an enemy, but you are also preparing to use violence as a last resort for self-defense, which is what happened in a way, Yeah. right? and that is why they need military contingents because these places are often war toned and you need somebody who can defend themselves in in these war toned areas but at the same time deliver peace so yes you're right un contingents generally do prepare and in fact one of the reasons why all of this escalated was because of the fact that one particular contingent did not uh, uh, adhere to the to this particular exercise of you know uh, this peaceful engagement you know they they escalated the conflict and that was one of the reasons why it yeah, escalated so that,
1: that, that, let, let's get into that i mean you know this conflict didn't just start out by somebody shooting at somebody like right. many conflicts do start it, it was slowly building up like a pressure cooker and ultimately it just burst out so give us like a little, little insight into what really happened
0: correct so in fact, I'll even tell you the politics of what happens. You know, so the force commander at that time in Sierra Leone for that particular mission, the overall in charge of that operation was coincidentally an Indian Army general, V.K. Jetli, like you pointed out before we we started this out. And they were so when the Indian peacekeeping contingent landed in Sierra Leone uh, before they got deployed to their their sector of deployment, one of the towns that they were going to deploy was Daru, which is funny because it's also an Indian mm-hmm. word for for drink, but. The the people in Sierra Leone had very interesting names, you know, one of the main characters of in, in the Hunt town who was, she had the name sister and there was a guy whose name was brother. So, I mean, they literally had those names. I mean, as, the, as if,
1: even the even the fighting names are quite funny. There's the West Side Boys and the RUF. So, I mean, they yeah. are the gangster oriented names.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But we need to understand there's a major distinction between the RUF and the West Side Boys, right? You need to understand that Liberia was going through a political crisis where there was this guy called Charles Taylor who ended up, uh, uh, you know, running a successful campaign against the leadership. And inspired by them, the RUF, which was the biggest rebel group uh, within Sierra Leone, which was led by Fode. I forgot the last name that he had, but he was he was some guy called Fode, and he was also inspired by this political ambition. And he wanted, so he was part of this erstwhile Sierra Leone army and he ended up defecting and then rising a military organization of its own. And unlike the other groups within Sierra Leone, he was, he had a larger political ambition a far, and, and that is why the group was far more, more disciplined, organized. And as a result, and large as well, right? Very large, very large. And I think they also had some very brutal practices. The half sleeve and the full sleeve, I'll I'll come to that as well. But yes, so essentially what happened was that when the Indian contingent landed in Sierra Leone, they were yet to be assigned the locations where they had to go. Now, Kalinghoun is a town, or Kalinghun is a town in, in the east of Syria, which is very close to the Liberian and Guinea border, right? And this particular town was in the heartland of the RUF territory. Now, the question is, which international military contingent is going to go there, right? Now, majority of the other nationalities, they basically put their hands up and says, look, that's the heartland of the RUF rebel group, very barbaric. We are not going to go there. So by default, this challenge ended up landing in the laps of the Indians. You know, they had to take a decision. All right, you know, we don't have a choice. The other contingents have given their hands up. It's a voluntary force. I mean, if we force them to go, they might just withdraw. And it won't help the greater mission at all. So they decided, you know what, the Indian contingent, you have to go there. And that is how the Indian contingent, I, I think, found themselves in in the most in the heartland of the RUF, in the heartland of the the enemy, uh, if if I could call it that. You know, the the principal opposition that they had in Sierra Leone, and that is how they found themselves uh, in that territory. Now. When they moved from their uh, landing zone to first, they went to a town called Daru, where they left the majority of their uh, the, the bigger force that the Indian peacekeeping force had, uh, where they set up the DDR camps, which were basically for uh, rehabilitation, and where they saw first sign of successes in terms of having people come over. Where the first volunteers of RUF rebels who gave up their weapons ended up coming and joining those camps. Now. A very interesting thing that the Indian contingent was doing, which the other contingents were not doing, right? Uh, you need to understand that the bulk of the RUF comes from the locals. I mean, without the local support, no right. matter how how barbaric you are, you you're not going to have an army, right? So the Indian peacekeeping contingent decided to win the hearts and minds, as they call it in the in counterinsurgency scenarios, right? Yeah. But what's the most effective tool to do that? You know, and and this is where. A lot of people who are into sports will love it you know sports is one of the best tools to win hearts and minds of people you know and what they essentially started doing is they essentially started conducting games right in the heart of the city they started conducting volleyball games and they started inviting people from all walks of life who were there to observe and join and kids and adults and everybody and anybody who was there and this became a very regular affair it was essentially started to keep the troops motivated to keep them, you know, in, in the right headspace. But at the same time, it extended far beyond that. And it so it also happened that some of the RUF rebel groups also ended up coming and playing and all of that. And that is where they started forming those bonds, that the bonds that you form on the sports field. So not right. only did they end up winning the, the hearts and minds of the locals, but in some cases... They also ended up winning the hearts and minds of some of the RUF rebel group members who were there. This also gave the Indian military a unique opportunity to gather intelligence, right? Where are you from? What is your family background? All right, you know, where did you move from last night or whatever when you're having a casual chat after a game? after a friendly match. But this valuable intelligence is, is building in a bigger story. So now so now they know, all right, these are the areas, this is how they move, this is what they do. They even spoke to the locals there, you know, while distributing aid, they ended up building water tanks for them, water purifiers and all of that. Got their engineering companies involved in building all, all of these uh, crucial assets, which ended up earning them a lot of goodwill. And this goodwill ultimately uh, is, is what they leveraged, what the Indian contingent leveraged. Now, as for your question that you pointed out as to what point did it escalate, uh, this is where I like to point out to the Kenyan contingent, which was there in a different part, in the western part of Sierra Leone. And that is when they they did not do the same things that the Indians were doing. You know, They were more forceful with their peacekeeping operation. And in many cases, they ended up getting into a physical confrontation with the people. right? And one fateful physical confrontation was that... There was an incident which turned violent, and the attack helicopters that were supporting those contingent ended up killing twenty RUF rebel group members. This was the the, the final straw which ended up escalating the conflict. And this particular information, for surprising reasons, was not conveyed to the entire uh, UN peacekeeping operation in the entire Sierra Leone. And the was fallout it, was of it this, like uh,
1: w- was it deliberately done or was it just a fog of war?
0: Fog of war, because nobody knows actually why this was not communicated. I, I think the the source that I'm relying on is Operation Kukri book written by Major General Ponia, uh, who has uh, spoken about his experience, and even he has mentioned that he is not really sure as to, you know, why it was not communicated, but it was not. But things escalated as a result of that and what ended up happening is that the RUF rebel group which was tolerant of the UN peacekeeping forces up until that point because of the goodwill they were doing uh, to the society at large and they were not a direct opposition to them or, or they did not come for the, the diamond mines that the RUF rebels uh, were, were looking after so they really didn't mind the UN forces up until that point. But the moment they had these casualties, essentially what they did is, any place in, in the entire Sierra Leone, minus Freetown, which is the capital of Sierra Leone, they ended up circling all the, all the, the UN, uh, troops. UN troops everywhere. But there's one interesting uh, thing about the RUF, which was unlike all the other rebel groups within, uh, and why they were such a, it's a good leadership lesson as well. You see, you understand, you know, even in a place like Sierra Leone, where we look at them as rebel groups and we look at them as untrained fighters, their leadership was so designed that with every military commander, there was one person who was highly educated, who was deputed with that person. And he was the, the political analyst, if you were to call it that. He was the one who would go into negotiations with them. And they, he would, and those guys were very well-read, very well-read. I means they these guys could speak one or two languages, they could uh speak uh, english very well they could communicate with international uh, bodies of troops and they would often sit in meetings in silence and just observe and these guys were the okay, master i think
1: that, that's the difference between ruf and westside boys because from what i understand westside boys were just a bunch of wannabe you know gangsters and absolutely. i mean they were dangerous but like they didn't have like the intellectual capacity to surround themselves with smarter people if that's what i can call it
0: absolutely Absolutely. And that is that is why I wanted to point this distinction out. Now, we need to understand there were other militia groups like you pointed out, West Side Boys, who were also very much a part of Sierra Leone's violent history. But they were, they did not have significant, excuse me, military capacity because they were mostly high on drugs, alcohol, and they were most of the time zoned out. They were trigger happy. They would just shoot people for no reason. They were inspired by a lot of gangster culture, but they were not a significant uh, threat uh, as such. The RUF, because of the way their hierarchy was, who was who had a far bigger political ambition and who had the knowledge and sense of running the resource mines which are there. But at the same time, we need to understand that the RUF was not very kind. We need to look at the barbarity that they, they did. To the Sierra Leons. you know, they would, they, they, would, they had a system of punishment which was known as the half sleeve and the full sleeve, where they would just chop the arm of an individual, yeah. and oftentimes they were kids. They would also take kids, child soldiers, which we hear about. Child, they would,
1: exactly, that's what I was about to call on. That child soldiers has been a perpetual problem in Africa. Any exactly rebel group, if you pick up, that's been that's actually a great motivating terror tactic, if I can call it. You kidnap absolutely. a child absolutely, the absolutely. family falls in line.
0: Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and they'll do anything to get the, the, yeah. the child. And the out, kids but are that,
1: malleable. I mean you get the kids high on drugs and voila, you got a army.
0: You know, the barbarity now that you pointed out it was to an extent where they would ask the kids to come, line their parents up in front of uh the kid, give the, give an AK forty seven to the kid and tell them that now you shoot your parents down. And this is something that is even shown in the movie Blood Diamond, right? But here, the Indian contingent which was there, they actually saw it firsthand, the kind of barbarity that these uh, RUF were doing to their own people, you know? And like you mentioned about the fact that giving them drugs and, you know, sending them out to war, they would even rub uh, rub cocaine onto the injuries of, of kids, you know? That is the kind of barbarity that these guys showed towards their uh, you know, fellow countrymen. That was their nature. So,
1: but yeah, So I mean, this happened. I mean, the Kenyans, you know, provided the spark to a conflict which was just ready to engulf the entire country. But what's curious is how the UN peacekeepers who were armed were allowed to be taken prisoner. I mean, now it's a very political situation. Uh, uh, there's a political angle to it you just can't go around shooting people and that's the mandate that UN has but can you shed some light about how that happened how did the UN peacekeepers and a significant number of them not just like 10 20 of them a significant number of them were allowed to be captured and were allowed to be taken prisoner by RUF
0: right so this is where uh Things get really interesting and this is when the drama starts unfolding like a movie and it's actually like a movie because the kind of things yeah. that have happened very interesting right so majority of the foreign uh, about 16 odd out of the 17 contingents they ended up giving up arms and ammunition because of the uh, standoff between the ruf and uh, the they the handed BC over forces. the arms to them they handed over the arms they basically laid down they surrendered they became hostages willingly now, what's also interesting to note the kind of barbarity that the RUF did to their own citizens, it did not do to the UN. Why is that? Because, like I mentioned earlier about their leadership structure, they knew the implications of directly attacking the, uh, you know, the uh, UN forces. If you do that, then the entire their entire whatever they have built their small empire, it comes goes down, down the drain. Down, goes Go down the drain, right? But there was one contingent that did not was not willing to surrender because the vocabulary of surrendering your weapon was not even in their cards and that was the indian military contingent they just it just did not sit well with them the fact that they were to a on a foreign soil become hostages lay down their arms willingly and they therefore chose to be in a standoff uh, uh, and and by the way, this is where you need to understand that Major Punia, who played a fantastic role in this particular operation, where he ended up b- making very strong connections with the local uh, commander of the RUF there, and as a result of his uh, his diplomatic, you know, reach reach out and his his personal connection, so, where he was able to.
1: I mean, I mean, and before you just you know just for the viewers, who was he like? Which unit was he from? What right. role did he play there?
0: Right, so he was he was the company commander of the two thirty three men who were finally had a three month long standoff in Callinghan Town, right? Uh, he was the one of who was leading the fourteenth mechanized infantry, and uh, he was the one responsible for uh, the peacekeeping operations in Callingham, which is which is very close to the Liberian and Guinea border, right? And he was somebody who played a very pivotal role. So during this escalation, what had happened was that he had been taken hostage. Very interesting. So, because he went regularly to meet the RUF commanders, one fine day he gets a call from one of the RUF commanders who <coughs> ends up inviting him over for a meeting. Now, he along with another, me- another captain of his, I think Sunil or Sushant, one of the two captains, uh, they both ended up going to attend the meeting. Very movie, t- movie style, you know. He, he goes to the meeting unarmed, he reaches there and this time the tone is very different. Suddenly, he's surrounded by men with guns, both all of them are puzzled, they are looking you know, he tries to talk his way out, is not able to do that. A couple of minutes later, he learns about the incident that has taken place with the Kenyan UN force in the other end of Sierra Leone. And that is when uh, things get interesting. Then he's taken hostage and he, along with him, a couple of, I think, 11 odd foreign, di- foreign dignitaries or observer groups members are also taken hostage. Now, the RUF did not have the capacity to feed these guys, so they end up sending his driver. And his captain to the base to inform the base members to lay down their arms and also to bring their own food, the food of the hostages. Oh, so you know?
1: we we keep you prisoner and you feed yourself.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that's how that's how it went. Now, because he had such a personal connection and he, he had meant such a goodwill with the RUF commanders there, you know, inviting them over for drinks, inviting them over for the festivities of the UN peacekeeping operation uh, contingent. Sitting with him, talking about all the other things, getting them into like volleyball a, games. Nothing
1: like a bottle of Old Monk to make friends, huh?
0: Absolutely. That is exactly what he did. You know, he invited him over and the way people just loosen themselves up after a couple of drinks is... The kind of friendships you can make after that is very interesting. <laughs> but anyways, so um, because of that, he was able to convince him to allow him to visit back at the base but during this time when he was held hostage overnight the captain who had gone back to get the food what the ruf rebels had tried doing they again very smart isolate the leadership get them into a hostage scenario the rest will follow right very genius you would not think uh, that somebody of such you know uh, a, a rebel group would think like that i mean it's it's a genius move i have to compliment on that particular strategic move you know you isolate the leadership take them hostage but of course, the Indian contingent is built different, right? So the captain who went there, the RUF rebels, uh, they pointed a gun at the captain's head and they told the uh, the men of the 233 men who were there that you lay down your arms and ammunition or else we'll shoot the captain. Now, the captain, instead of telling his men to keep the weapon down, he shouted back saying that uh, you know, you will not put the weapon down. Even if they have to shoot me, you will not put the weapon down. So the message was clear that the Indian Army is not going to put the weapon down. Right? And when, even when Major Punia learned about this, he was the company commander. He got, obviously he felt proud that his junior leadership uh, was built in that way. You know, they were resilient in that manner. That, you know, even if they were to choose death, they would choose death rather than surrender the weapon or put the weapon down so this is where things changed eventually you know he was able to talk his way out of that particular scenario but when they were held hostage one of their teams under uh, 2IC uh, you know they had left with a column of about 22 men i guess i am not sure of the exact number but it is somewhere close to that range this they had left to assist them but they also got picked up by the ruf and unlike so the
1: tre- I, I i have a question on this you know yeah. like what you are, of course you're facing a very large force you're facing a force which has you surrounded has local support didn't the contingent think of shooting their way out wasn't that an option on the table
0: they did so initially because of so this is very interesting you know when it came down to that obviously the un peacekeeping posture also had changed before they yeah. did not have they did not have wiring outside their now they had pillboxes they had bunker made up they were going, doing stand-to's, drills in the nights. The contingent now, the entire posturing has changed. Now the enemy had showed his intent of being combative. Now the Indian military did what it's known to do best. You know, now yeah. they were in a. Now they started gearing, shifting gears from being there because for peaceful.
1: I, I think that distinction needs to be made from what people think being taken prisoner and being surrounded. I think the Correct. case was being more about being surrounded rather than being actually taken a prisoner. Because so, if you look at a similar incident which happened just a few months later with the British, the Irish guards, they were, they were taken prisoner. They were put in cells. They were taken prisoner.
0: Right. So, of course, you know, with the 233 men at Kalingan, nothing like this happened. You know, they were they maintained their positions and they were they were ready to fight their way out. You know, they had made up their mind and they were ready to fight their way out. Uh, but the 2IC and the the 5x8 GR men, the 22 odd men who were with the 2IC, they were taken prisoners in a different yeah. town called or something like that right which was slightly about 10 kilometers from Daru which was their main base for the Indian contingent now uh, they were roughed up they were beaten up they were roughed up because I think they had tried to break camp in the night they had tried to move out but by the way since we're speaking on Operation Kukri there was a mini Kukri also which played out that's also that also has a very interesting story of its own right So now you need to understand that at Kalingan, the the Indian peacekeeping contingent was divided in two places. One was at a high ground, which was a much better tactical position, which basically overlooked the the town. And the other one was in a hospital. Now the hospital was a relatively weaker position because the RUF could, could, you know, uh, they had a massive target, very few options to move from. And they could have, uh, you know, just shot the entire hospital and, and done away with. Easy target. So, easy target. So, in concentrated force, you can surround it, shoot everybody inside. And what the RUF had started doing at this point was, they knew that, okay, you can't fight them. The the military contingent, which was, oh, by the way, uh, when the hostages and the observers, the the, the foreign observers, uh, Major Punia was able to negotiate their release and his own release and, and go back to camp, right? To the UN, to the Indian contingents camp. Now, once they came back to camp, the observers were also taken into the Indian camp. Understand this that they had come as a part of a different observing group. They were not part of the Indian contingent. Right. But due to this prevailing scenario, they had now come up into the Indian contingents uh, t- uh, under, under into the fold of the Indian contingent and they were taking care of, of these foreign observers. Right. Uh, but what ended up happening is unlike the other Parties or other contingents. Indian India was not willing to lay down its arm, and as a result, uh, what the RUF wanted to do was they wanted to let them wait. You know, they hoped that their Russians would run out eventually and they would end up surrendering if not now.
1: Like a siege.
0: Exactly. So they just would. They put a nice little fielding around the entire uh, compound, and they just sat there, right? But you need to understand that the high ground position was not. Like a very small compound. It was spread over like two, three hundred meters and it was like a massive area which was fortified by a, a lot of concertine wires, bunker, pill boxes, and a lot of other uh, things that proactively the Indian military had already put in place to defend there. They also started cre- clearing trees and everything for helipads and all of that stuff as well. Now, what needed to happen was that the contingent from the hospital needed to be moved. Into the high ground so that all the force is concentrated in one area so they can then they only have to worry about one place they cannot worry about two places which have different defensive systems so this is when a very daring sort of uh, night sneak out operation ended up happening where lucky for them there were some problems uh, at the Liberian border because of which the couple of RUF members had to leave and sensing this as an opportunity and of course, the intelligence, how how Major Punia had was by speaking to the locals because he was already, right. he had he had made established himself as a, and he would move freely back and forth even under this scenario because he had good connections with the RUF commander there. He would regularly go to meet him and during this time, he would also utilize the opportunity to gather intelligence from locals, speaking to the RUF carders and all of that stuff. And what happened is that these guys snuck out in the night. And if they were caught, they would have been shot, you know, it's simple, with the RUF, the last thing they wanted was that. And it did eventually, and, and they moved out, you know, after two, two minutes pacing, a group of 10, 10 men, they evacuated camp, warlike stocks, uh, you know, warlike stores with them on on foot. And they made a dash for the high ground. And the, the flag end, the party that was leaving at the very flag end, they did end up getting into a firefight, but that by the time it was too late, they had already reached the high ground and now the things again became even more serious because now the ruf has you know opened fire and yeah the next meeting that major had with the ruf commander who was i think uh, um, i forgot the name of the ruf commander there but uh, he was not pleased obviously but now the directions had come you know it, it now when three months had passed now the direction didn't come that this is this has become too much uh, and the twice he was also beaten up, and his party was also taken hostage. They were put into cell. The twenty two, twenty three odd members. So now, now it was time to you know get into the fight. And uh,
1: uh, uh, and that's very interesting because if you see the complement of soldiers who fought there, you had mechanized soldiers, you had infantry, you had special forces. So. What was like the mix of things? How did it all pan out? Which units were sent where? And what was the ultimate aim when Operation Khokri was officially launched?
0: Right. So the very interesting thing to point out here, you know, during this, this three month long siege, uh, the foreign peacekeepers who were part of the observer groups who were now under the care of the Indian peacekeeping forces. These guys did not uh, want to be there they did not want to fight their way out they wanted to be like the other military contingents walk out surrender become hostages or whatever and then leave and the indian military and especially major punia and all they were not happy with the kind of uh, you know and the british and one of one of the russian they had started giving some problems to the indian contingent over there within the camp but when the final military option was uh, um, was to be carried out uh, initially, I was under, when I first read about Operation Kukri, I was under the impression that the US British helicopters had actually, the Chinooks had actually come in and they were, played a fundamental role in these operations. Turns out that's not the case. The only reason that the Chinook helicopters were coming were to pick up their milit- their British guy who was, who uh, was with the Indian military contingent and just to evacuate that person. And it was Major Punya and the Indian contingent which convinced them that please take the others also with you, you know, the other foreign, uh, uh, Indian peacekeeping forces and what is interesting is there was an Indian officer also with, part of the, the observing group who chose to go in the Chinooks rather than stay with the contingent his Indian army contingent which was to which uh, you know Major Punia had uh, you know conveyed his sure.
1: some very nice words were shared
0: <laughs> I mean a very sarcastic way of saying that you know I would have preferred had you chosen to go with the Indians than to go with the observer group but then, I mean, that's an indication of the kind of person, you know, yeah. you, you find out who the real warrior is when you're in, you in a war, right? But so now, now the thing is, how do you do a fighting breakout? Now, the idea was uh, the, the main body of the Indian troops who had the BMPs and the heavy fighting vehicles were to leave from Daru. They were to also send attack helicopters from, from the town of, of Daru. Then they were to go to a place called Pendombo or something like that. It's midway. It's it's between Daru and between Kel- Kellingham. right? And the Indian troops they were to do a fighting breakout. The two thirty-three men had to do a fighting breakout and make their way to to Pendombo where they would be linking up with the eighteen grenadiers who were heli heavily dropped. But two kilometers. Point,
1: a point of note: the eighteen grenadiers was coming straight out of Kargil. They fought at exactly. Tololing, they fought at Tiger Hill. And this was a you know, blooded unit, if you can call it that.
0: They had a, they had an amazing history, a lot of accolades. And they had come out from, like you said, blooded unit. They had their own fair share of casualties. But this was a battle-hardened unit, right? 18 Grenadiers. Which was like, a, I mean, you could not have better rescuers than people who have come victorious from a battle. <laughs> yeah,
1: game, you know? I mean, they're coming on a and- high
0: yes yeah, so i mean for them it's like business as usual right they were just in a different war there different place yeah, but it's same the thing same thing same thing so uh, so they were to link up with the with this column near Pendumbu, which was and then all of them were to go together as a big fighting force and make their way to daru now on the day of the fighting on the day of the when the fighting was supposed to begin the plan was that at 5 am in the morning the at the first light, basically, not 5 a.m., at first light, they will initiate their operation, they will start fighting, right? They will start, they they will choose the first trigger. But when do you decide when to start, right? So what they had decided was that the Chinook helicopters which are coming in to pick up uh, the the military observers, uh, that will be the triggering point for the operation because they'll make a lot of sound, right? And because of that sound, they will be waking everybody up and because of that sound, uh, the moment the helicopters start hovering, the Indian contingent will open fire. They will start with their breakout procedure. The helicopters will pick up the observers and leave. And then they will start doing the fighting retreat. And the Ghatak platoon, which was led by Captain Prashant, was supposed to be the, the, uh, the ones who would go in first to destroy the communication uh, uh, base, which was there within the town, and to destroy the ammunition. Now, the ammunition was destroyed in a very very brilliant manner, right? Luckily for the Indian contingent, they could see the ammunition, the koth, as we call it in the Indian military uh, parlance, uh, they could see the ammunition uh, uh, storehouse from from their high ground, and they decided that the moment the, the RUF rebels spring into action on hearing the helicopters and the gunfire, they will rush towards the ammunition house to gather ammunition, and that is the point when they will release the RLs, and they will shoot the ammunition house,
1: so, I I can see why they're making a movie out of this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, just imagine. But the brilliant strategy is, you you the moment everybody's rushing to get the collect the weapons, you that is the time you blow the weapon uh depot.
1: Cash, okay, yeah. It
0: blows up. It takes up the maximum amount of opposition with them. The then the Ghatak Pradun, which is already near the town, starts firing at them, keeping the road open, and the entire column of UN under the suppression of fire breaks out for. Uh, the main road now this is where things get interesting you got to understand that the roles had got reversed this time the mechanized infantry was on foot and the 5x8 GR coming from Daru was it, as Come a mechanized on yeah. uh, yes on, on armored personal carriers right and and PMPs now they it was still a lot of time before they could catch up with them and these guys had to the entire night the entire day they had to walk while they are fighting right So it was fight and shoot maneuver, classic infantry maneuver, one column fights, the other column moves, the other column stops and fights, the other column moves. But what the RUF had done, so there's a distinction, right? So the Indian military, like a professional military can stand its own ground. The RUF is not built to stand its ground. It it is meant to fight like a gorilla and that's what they used. Hit and run. But they're the most deadly when it's nightfall. So they had to do everything they can to, to move out before nightfall. Now, the moment they came about two kilometers out of the Kalingan town, fighting, that is when they linked up with the Para Special Forces uh, unit which had come to aid them. This orange smoke, they linked up with them. The, the Paras led their way on the front and Major Prashant's team, which was the Ghatak Platoon, which was supposed to be in the front, was now shifted to the rear to protect the, the column from the rear. And now this entire body was moving along the road. Now, what the RUF had done was they had gone ahead a couple of kilometers and they had dug up the road because they knew that the heavy trucks would not be able to cross. This is where the engineers also came in handy. You know, they had to come up... In, in one case, they decided to just p- pull out all the warlike stores from from the truck and just blow it up. But then the engineers were able to devise some ways to, you know, release uh, uh, the trucks in, in some way. I'll have to, again, uh, I think, go back and confirm as to what happened with the trucks. Did they end up going along or... Were they destroyed? That part I'm not so sure about, but they kept the the column moving, and it was finally when they they linked up with the 18 grenadiers and they had to stay overnight at Pendambu, and after that they started getting a lot of uh, air power support, and helicopter support, couple of ambushes along the way. They were able to take them all out, and what's interesting is the only casualty that they had was actually coming from Daru, not from the heartland of RUF, you know. He was driving a truck. He, they were hit with an RPG, and he got hit. And in order to save the warlike stores which were there, I think on a neighboring truck or, or other people, he ended up with sustain with injuries. He ended up driving the vehicle out of the road so that the other column can keep on moving. And that is how he he succumbed to his injuries. And and that is how he sort of he was the only casualty of the entire conflict, uh, and not not from a place where the actual operation began from from a place where who is coming to actually reinforce them. So that needs to be understood. So,
1: I mean, when you look at it from a very you know, significant standpoint that uh, such a large force fought its way out from ambushes, from all sorts of obstacles and they didn't suffer any fatal casualties. And that's, you know, it points to the prowess of those who were there. Like even after you know being contained for three months, you still were able to do that.
0: Correct, correct. And, and they had issues with regards to keeping the morale up and yeah. they had one or two places where they had to punish one or two troops who showed a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, maybe second thoughts and they had to correct it right right then and there and the message was clear from the company commander that if you're, everybody's on board with this or you're going to get you know we don't accept this second thought business and all of that stuff you know yeah we are, go- we are going into fight we're going to fight end of the story because
1: you know? sieges you know sieges end up creating a very difficult mindset for those who are besieged uh, right. like it's it's a very uh, similar incident small incident though in 87 when uh, there was this flare up with on the Chinese border the Indians what they did instead of actually fighting the Chinese they occupied high grounds all around the Chinese incursion. And they choked off the supply. So for the next few months, the Chinese were blocked. in, And it became such a, you know, demotivating thing for them. it became difficult for them to even, you know, look up. And, you know, you're looking up, you're looking at the enemy all around you. That some of the Chinese actually committed suicide. It became so hard for them. So, I mean, sieges are meant to do that. The whole point of a siege is to sap your morale, sap your energy. And, like, even after that, after three months, if you're able to fight out it, points a lot to the junior leadership.
0: Junior leadership. Hands down, I mean, the junior leadership was so motivated that Captain Prashant, who was leading the Ghatak platoon, when he was told you have to go to the rear, he was very disappointed because he had been training all this while hard, pushing his Ghatak platoon hard, that they were the ones who were going to fight. And now he was told to go back. But he would later realize that because he wanted the fight so bad, that the company commander had put him in a position, which he thought initially is the rear, but what Was which saw the heaviest fighting, so he was put exactly where he wanted to be. And yes, junior leadership never broke morale. I I mean, even with the point where the gun was pointed at its head, you know, they he still like I'm going to fight. I'm going to you know you nobody lays down. But yeah, I mean, and then finally when the bigger the entire force sort of came together, they all linked up. Then there was no chance with attack helicopters and you know you have got armored personal carriers and. What not? The RUF could not have stood a chance. I but
1: mean, this whole, you know, uh, operation has quite a lot of similarities with ones as well. So if you look at Sri Lanka, you look at a peacekeeping force who ended up fighting there. You look at uh, Mogadishu or Somalia, that Black Hawk Doubt incident where a similar thing happened. A force had to fight its way out after entering a city. So I mean, and th- if you look at the casualties, they all suffered. They had to have a shot down in Somalia in sri lanka indians suffered a lot of casualties and you look at this incident it it just shows that people learn from past experiences and And they're willing to
0: adapt to it and it's not just that and you know as sad as it may be for a combat unit to be efficient they need to be in combat yeah you know like you cannot have a, a military which is really good at the firing range you know, they say that no plan survives the first contact with enemy. No training survives the first contact with enemy, also because you—that's when you start realizing the, uh, the the weaknesses in your preparation and how different reality is from your training training ranges and all of that. So you have yeah. to improvise, adapt, overcome. But yes, so this was the overall picture, and this operation was so successful that later on it actually paved the way for the RUF to actually come to a meaningful ceasefire rather than just. You know, something that they they were saying, um, giving lip service to. And it later on sort of brought many, many changes to Syria-Leon. And I don't think Syria-Leon has seen such a violent violence uh, beyond that point. And for anybody whose reference is, is blood diamonds, and the only way they know Syria because of Syria-Leon, sorry, because of their, their reference to the blood diamonds and the, the diamond resources, so you need to understand that the ending of that started with the Indian military's action in Syria early So that is the significance it's of It's like operation. a domino
1: which fell because even like immediately after this you had the British operation as well which was very similar of force taken captive and the SAS having to and the paras having to go in and rescue them. I mean this all paved the way for things to become slightly better I won't say things are great right now but in a grand scheme of things when you look at Africa West Africa specifically, it has been besieged by this conflict around blood diamonds. And, you know, it started with colonialism, then your blood diamonds and now natural resources. So things have become a little better. And ultimately, I think, you know, dominoes do fall in place.
0: Yes. Venturing Aki Podcast.